This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 17th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. On this Constitution Day, it's worth remembering those who didn't much care for the Constitution and how prescient they were about the growth of the federal government. Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, talks about the anti-federalists who helped shape the Constitution and the country. Winners write the history, so why do we care who the anti-federalists are? Why does that matter? Well, one of the worst ways to do history is, of course, to believe that the the history we know was inevitable. It was foreordained. And there's a lot of amazing things about the Constitution, but there were people who opposed it. And we call them the anti-federalists now, somewhat of a misnomer. uh, But again, winners also name their opponents. They're anti-something. They're anti-federalism. But they were the people who thought that we didn't need a really powerful centralized government sitting remotely in Washington, D.C., although it wasn't Washington, D.C. at the time, some federal city that was going to take over the you know the internal management of Rhode Island or, or, or Vermont or any of those states. Well, actually not Vermont. It wasn't a colony yet. <laughs> but uh, any of the other states that we didn't need that. And the best way of thinking about this, of putting yourself sort of back in 1787, is to think about the European Union now. If you, if you live in Luxembourg and they come along and say, hey, uh, Brussels should really have uh, power over healthcare decisions, the EU generally, in Luxembourg, you're like, we, we don't need that. We, we do you know, well on our own. We have a, our own welfare state. And uh, if we give Brussels power over Luxembourg, it's just going to be the Germans, the Spanish, the French, and the British ruling everything. Well, the anti-federalists said the same thing. If we give uh, power to a remote government, it's just going to be the Pennsylvanians and the Virginians and the New Yorkers ruling over all the states. And, and it's not necessary. So uh, what, what are some of the critiques? You said that they, they sort of offered these great critiques of where we are now. What were some of the criticisms they offered of the Constitution? So their biggest criticism, they they didn't like the fact that there wasn't a Bill of Rights. And that actually became part of the Constitution because it was close enough to not being ratified that they included a Bill of Rights. There was an explicit reason why George Mason, who stayed all the way to the end of the Constitution, the signing of the Constitution, why he didn't sign it, for example. So that was one of them. They objected. This is kind of interesting. They objected that the House of Representatives term was too long. And now we think that two years is really short. But what they believed in was that the people constantly needed to have a vote on everything the representatives did. So they bring them back every year and and check them on that. And they also just generally objected to the fact that the government that was created by the Constitution was too powerful. That one of their most prescient objections and one of the reasons why we should listen to them is their objection to the necessary and proper clause, which uh, we talk a lot about here at Cato. We talked about during the Obamacare case particularly a lot, they objected that the necessary and proper clause would become a – would sort of become a steamroller that would steamroll over state governments and turn them all into one national government. OK. So to quote Brutus, anti-federalist Brutus here that you say is most likely Robert Yates, necessary and proper clause would eventually annihilate all state governments and reduce this country to one single government. Exactly. And it might be – it's an overreach to say it was one it's one government now but this has definitely become more of an anti-federalist predicted world than it has become a federalist predicted world the federalists say that the government was going to be well contained within the enumerated powers that were given to congress and the anti-federalists they had a little bit more you know further view of history they're a little bit more prophetic and they knew why it would be the case that the necessary and proper clause would be used to increase power so much because every single time the government said all of our powers that we gave us in the Constitution aren't good 
enough. Uh, we need another power to make those powers better. And that becomes a one-way ratchet, another power and then another power. And they saw that. They saw that in 1787. And it's, it's worth going back and listening to them. We, of course, people always want to read the Federalist Papers to get a better understanding of what uh, Madison and Hamilton and Jay were thinking and arguing with each other. But what were uh, some of the most noted anti-federalist writers of the day? There are so many anti-federalist papers and so many anti-federalists, it's hard to actually uh, uh, get a grip on all of them. They also used pseudonyms, just like the federalists used Publius. We had Brutus, as you mentioned, who was probably Robert Yates. We had Melanchthon Smith. Uh, we had Agrippa. We had, uh, we had one guy who was called None of the well-born conspirators, which was one of my favorites because that's what they they accused the Constitutional Convention of being, a bunch of very rich planters going into this place and creating a national government that wasn't needed and wasn't needed especially by the, the least well-off people. And there – I would say Melanchthon Smith is the most read now. Brutus is definitely worth reading in response. But there's another interesting element to this. So many anti-federalists wrote, but the federalists – uh, the Federalist Papers, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay, had a better avenue to the big publications. So there's another reason why they they sort of went out in this uh, publications war going forward. Uh, the Anti-Federalist published in small publications, kind of like the blogs of the day, and some of those are lost, little pamphleteering. And uh, it wasn't exactly a fair fight uh, in the press at all because the people who promoted the Constitution were better connected. What evidence do we have that the writing of the anti-federalists influenced uh, the Constitution itself? Well, the best one is the Bill of Rights, uh, simply just the Bill of Rights. Uh, and, and after that, though, the really interesting thing is that after the Constitution is signed and after it comes into power, the anti-federalists tend to influence the nature of the debate in the 1790s and the first decade of the 19th century far more than the federalists. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison almost become like anti-federalists. Uh, one of the first questions that they had was about the creation of a national bank. And Alexander Hamilton says, we need a national bank. And Thomas Jefferson says, no, that's too much power in the federal government. The debate between the anti-federalists and the federalists is the debate that we still have today. But in the first 20, 30 years out of the Constitution, the anti-federalists generally won out uh, in keeping the government relatively small and being afraid of that nationalized power. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.